if you get things right, sometimes we can rise out of the water. Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast with Dan Mordab and... Uh, Phil Jones, Dan's younger brother. Oh, here we go. Here we go. He's gone from sidekick to younger brother. What next? All the modern day Batman and Robin as I'm really still trying to claim that title, although no one else agrees. No, Michelle Carney, she agrees. She thinks we're the modern-day Batman and Robin. She does, but she's she grew up in Stretford. <laughs> so we won't, we, <laughs> you got to watch them. you got to watch them, have we? We've got to watch them. Well, Phil, tell us about your week. What's been happening? What's, what's news in your world? Well, I was going to be talking about the tears again because oh. when I found out I was in London and not Kent, I was really pissed off last time we spoke, if you remember, Dan. Yep. But now it's all gone the other way around. And now Maidstone, where you are, is going into tier three tomorrow. Yep. Whereas London, where I'm now proud to be, is going into tier two tomorrow. All so, of a sudden, you want to be in London now, do you? Exactly. But I'll I'm not going to uh, go on about that one because watching Rudy Giuliani, I, what has happened to that guy? Because he was a hero during the New York 9-11 and... People looked at him and thought, this, this guy's really done an amazing job. And he's turned into a pantomime clown now. The guy is a complete idiot. And most recently, he obviously dyes his hair. <laughs> and it was running down the sides of his cheek while he was doing one of his ridiculous things. So, I mean, what has happened in America? It's just like crazy. So right. we're just hoping, hoping the next few months things level out and those people will just disappear forever. Um, but his daughter, his daughter actually wrote a piece about him in the Sunday Times, <laughs> and she thinks he's a complete dickhead. So, oh, really? Did she? Yes, yes. <laughs> so that's when you know things yeah. are not going well, when your own kids... Yeah, will go public kid. in the Sunday Times saying that you're a complete dickhead. Exactly. Right, well, well, she didn't use that word, but that was my Manchester terminology of it. <laughs> but, uh, she's very unhappy with her dad. Right, And uh, that's all I can say, really. But I think that's above everything else. Just watching him has made me realise there are some real idiots out there. Uh, very true, very true. But today we haven't got... We've got one of life's good guys. We've got a wonderful person today. So tell us all about uh, Mike Gary. I'm going to tell you about Mike. Now, uh, our listeners won't be able to see him, but you and I can see him. So I know that he's just wrapped up a Rizzler and he's having a little puff. And he's kicked his dog shavers <laughs> out of the door. So we, this, this could be, it could be that we may get the occasional bark when the dog wants to come back in. Um, but described as a genius by Peter Saville, today Dan and I welcome Mike Gary, whose gritty performance poetry has seen him gain international recognition. He's passionate about bringing live poetry to people who wouldn't normally experience it. And his work in this area is vast and varied. He's toured with John Cooper Clark for nearly a decade, has performed with the likes of New Order and Iggy Pop, and he's also created numerous commissions for the likes of the BBC, Manchester United, Nike, and of course, the Podge Lunch. Over to you. Welcome, Mike. Well, thank you for such a wonderful welcome and for making me feel so good about myself, Phil. That's what I love about you. 
<laughs> we'll, we'll see about that in about 40 minutes time shall we <laughs> no, it'll be all good mike we always kick off the these sort of podcast sessions with asking asking a, bit, a little bit of a random question but if you were to be stuck in the lift with someone anyone throughout history who would it be and why cyril smith Ooh. Oh, oh, right. Okay. I'd be in a lift with Cyril Smith. And if we bring anyone else in, I'd bring in Mike Tyson. What, so you can box him? So he can... No, just talk. Yeah. Just talk. Conversation. Conversation. The most, right. most obscurest of minds interest me a great deal. And just to, to have a, concert, a conversation with someone with such an obscurely messed up mind, I'd find quite interesting. I could have Nelson Mandela or Jesus Christ or whatever, but... Yeah, I'd like someone pretty messed up, to be honest. I find them a lot more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right, there we go. Brilliant. And that's gonna that, that gives us some insight into where we're gonna be for the next half an hour. No, brilliant. Well, Mike, right, picking up from that then, for those that don't know your story, tell us a little bit about where your love for poetry all began. Because there's a there's a great story here. So um I grew up in Heart Moss Side in Manchester. Um, and um, I was like most young kids, we got obsessed with lyrics and words and phrases and expressions and stuff like that. We used to take record the young ones and have long, uh, long soliloquies from Rick and that. And the whole language and spoken word thing really interests me. I come from an Irish background. I had a constant dialogue of Irish, sort of like equivalent of patois going on. So we had patois next door. We had Irish this side. And a whole love of language uh, and words and phrases and expressions began really early and I started making up chants and I started singing dirty songs and the old rhythm of language really interested me. Then Arshay invited me into his room, my big brother, and gave me things called albums and let me sit on his bed and open these gateball sleeves with words inside it. And that's where I discovered Elton John and the Rolling Stones and Iggy Pop and the Stranglers. And then our Trisha would bring me next door and she'd play me Billy Paul or Michael Jackson or, but the main emphasis was always for me was words, the words of what these people were saying. Um, and I had an amazing teacher in primary school who, um, who made me believe that uh, the power of words is the way forward for me more than anything else. She got me into reading and stuff like that. And she read us stories and she had that ability to do what a lot of people who work with kids haven't got. And it's that important ability to make you feel significant. I wrote a poem about her. Do you want to hear it? Oh, now oh you're here talking. we go. Yeah, that's good. You're talking, mate. Okay then. <clears throat> to be honest with you, when I start something like this, I'm always dead nervous. So if I do a poem, it sort of helps. Um, so this is called Signifying. It's for Miss McComb. Everyone think about their own favourite primary teacher. Remember when you used to sit on the carpet for stories at quarter to three? Yeah. This ain't the poem, by the way. I'm just talking. Um, <laughs> everyone think about that teacher now. Remember you called a man once and things like that and put your hand up and watch, push your mate out of the way so you could see the pictures. Well, a lot of them teachers made me, made us feel significant in a world whereby I believe most kids are pretty much ignored. This is called Signified and it's for Miss McComb. I called a man once. I was sat on a carpet with my arms folded and my legs crossed and my fingers on lips. In that special place where she would eclipse 
where she'd read us poems, tell us tales and sing us songs and like a fish to its source. I was drawn in. I loved the way she'd hold the book so that you could see the pictures and the way she'd slowly move it from side to side so that even the naughty kids at the back could see. She told me I was allowed to dream. She got us to act out plays. I remember doing Finnegan's Wake. She taught me about Shakespeare, Shaw, Joyce, and Yeats, and I was eight, eight. But in that room, her voice was sweet music, echoing prayers and hymns and stories and songs. She was a living angel, but you'd know if you'd done wrong. She took us on school trips, do you know, to castles with moats, we'd cross oceans on boats and we'd float, float, without ever actually leaving the room. I love the way she made the simple act of reading the class register sound like the most beautifully sung tune, simply by the way she'd validate children's names by saying, Dan, Philip, Catherine, James. And sometimes she'd get us to close our eyes and she'd say, imagine worlds beyond these skies. And she told me once, Michael, it's all right to cry. But her eyes, her eyes were seaside blue sunshine, but in that rainy 1970s black and white moss side where my messed up little brain had disappeared the second she walked into the room, she made my insignificant life signify. And she taught me that the more I'd read, the more I'd see, and the more I'd see, the more I'd know, and the more I'd know, the more I'd grow, and the more I'd grow, the more I am. And I'd give the world and all its riches just to hold that woman's hand one more time and say thanks. Oh, miss. Thanks. Thank you. Wow. That was completely unexpected. Brilliant. She was a massive influence, and uh, I bet you've both got favourite primary school teachers, but now it's Marcus Rashford. Marcus Rashford's doing the same on a massive, massive scale. It's the greatest thing to happen yeah, to the footballing community since, well, I can't think of anything better. I cannot think of a, of a bigger contribution any footballer has made to society. The simplicity of a single tweet, reading is cool. Do you know, it's just yeah. simplicity. Yeah. This is what I've done all my life. This is what all my poetry is about. It's about hoodwinking. It's hoodwinking so that people listen to me in the first place. I capture them by poems. But ultimately, what I'm trying to do is, I'm, tr I'm trying to say, listen, Read. If you read, you grow. If you grow, you live in a world of more happiness. You understand people more. You have empathy. And also, you don't meet thick people who read. It's my evangelical ambition to make sure that every kid in this country, in the world, leaves their school with the ability to read, but not just read the way we're taught. We're not taught to read, we're taught to repeat words. Cat, dog, mat. I never sat there with a novel with us and said, this is a novel. Do you know why it's called a novel? Well, because it's new. That's why it's called a novel. You have main characters. Who's the main character in yours? When's it set? When's it based? Who's talking in the book? 
No one ever did that. They just chucked Biff and Chip or Mary and Jane at us. We need a different, totally different strategy to the way we approach educating our young people when it comes to reading. A, a fantastic answer and poem, but it actually brings me, because we're talking about reading and your passion. Um, you did a 15 year stint working as a librarian. And in that time, you did groundbreaking work in developing homework centres, which you started throughout Manchester's library network. Your passion to encourage young kids to read has um, led you to be involved in many different initiatives around this topic. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So, I think it's dead easy and it doesn't need explaining. And it's, I just don't get why people don't get it. If you read, right, you will be successful. Yeah, it's, it's just a fact. It's as plain as the nose on your face. So why aren't we putting more effort and time into doing that? So I am, and that's what I do. So as well as the 10,000 kids a year I work with in schools, I also work, work on initiatives like reading initiatives. So I do a lot with libraries, try to get young people, especially during the summer and holidays, just to get them reading, because you know the crack. Yeah. We don't read books as little kids. We just say the words. We don't think. We don't sit there. We don't. And for lads especially, for lads, it's a competition to see who can get the most stars on the chart. So you can get up, so you can choose their own books, 1A, 1B, 1C. It's all that, which isn't necessarily bad because it gets some reading, but no crop takes place during it. So most of my work is based upon initiatives like reading aloud, reading in libraries, about developing... I'm working with groups like the National Literacy Agency, the Poetry Society. Um, I also, I don't think this is just kids. I'm currently working in a in an uh, alcohol unit, whereby they're all it's all AA. They're all addicted to alcohol and drugs. And again, again, bring reading, and it transforms lives. I see it before my very eyes. I could send you emails about this week from kids who go, you taught me 20 years ago, you came into my class for one day, you've transformed the way I see the world. I can, I, I can, I can send you emails because it's so simple and so plain on, on a nosy face. And you should be targeting jails and mental health places and all these places whereby people on the edge, they need a, they, they need a hand up, a leg up. And I believe the leg up is reading. I'm not sure where you've met my sisters. Yeah. My nephew, Mark Hilton, and he went, he went through a really a, a troubling time, like a lot of kids, not, not just in Manchester, all over the country, but he was on a, a path that wasn't a great one. And he met a teacher at Hotwood Hall. And this one teacher turned him around completely because this teacher spent time with him got him actually working with a camera, realised that he had a good eye for it. And, and Mark is now a cameraman at the BBC Manchester. He often sends me little clips of famous footballers that he's with or he's just about to interview. And But I, the, the teacher made all that difference. That one moment where a teacher actually took him aside and said, no, you're really good at this. Do something. So I'm, I'm with you completely there, Mike. It's, uh, it can make a huge difference. Yeah, and the failings of our society also mean that I also believe that it's not just teachers, it's adults full stop. We have a responsibility to young people. 
Yeah. However, no matter how much society's created this thing whereby if you're over 35 and you chat to a kid, you're a paedophile. Because that's the way it's made out. You chat to a kid, you're a weirdo. No, sorry, I chat to every kid who yeah. passed in conversation. You know, it's just not happening. Kid falls over or gets hurt in the street, everyone's scared to go over. What? Yeah. In case you get some right. And that's what I mean about the reading thing as well. It's important for us as dads. For our kids to see us with books, for them to hear us talking positively about books, and not just dads, but uncles, aunties, friends. We need a whole grafting initiative whereby the whole image of books in this country changes and young people see them as, pos as positive things. I think the Prince's Trust have also recognised what you've been doing, haven't they? Yeah, they do. They give us a massive grant. That's the point. If you, if you tell someone what you want to do, and do it. Right, take for example the England team. Let's say there's 22 young lads there between the ages of 16 and 25, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Their education so far has been very guided, very approached. And I know this because I've worked with United's Academy. When I go in there and work with those kids, I see transformations. I see them changing the way they see, the way they think. And if we work with them over a period of time, you see a change in a kid. And also, when you're 15, 16, 17, how desperate are we for male influence? How desperate are we for a bloke who's a little bit different, but sound? But this bloke reads as well and talks passionately about why reading will change your life and make you something else to do. With a group of lads, I say to them, what are you like with girls, lads? And they're all shit, because we're shit at 15. Say, <laughs> our child lines are what an outer spacer, isn't it? You know what I mean? But what I do is I convince them that the ability to communicate effectively makes you better looking. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> it does. It does, Phil. It does, because ultimately there's a group of five lads there. You stood there, a girl's looking at this group of five lads. She's not particularly asked about what they look like in the first place, so long as it's possible. If you're interesting and you can talk and be funny, you fit as fuck. <laughs> there we go. That's so brilliant. I will use strategies like this. I will convince them why reading will benefit them. But no talk airy-fairy. I say them better with girls, lads. <laughs> better at lagging your mum, lads. Better at getting out later. Make the skill, yeah, Make the skill appropriate to their needs. Yeah. That's Wonderful. Brilliant. Which, as we're talking about a, a few lads that have taken the wrong turning, you've performed everywhere from Strangeways Prison to the Edinburgh Festival in Carnegie Hall. They're all different types of performances. Do you have a favourite? I do have a favourite. I do have a favourite. And my favourite, what... So I do a lot in Ireland, because I love Ireland, and we're from there. Um, and I was in Cork about two years ago, and I was invited to this, I don't even know what it was, but I went into this room, and it was about 150 people. I took the average age down by about 20 years. It was all 78-year-olds. And <laughs> Tommy would stand up and go, hello, everybody, how's it going? Oh, Mary, tell us, tell us, sing us, sing us you moved through the fair. And Mary will get up and say, I was low, and you'll just sit there, and Mary will finish. She'll turn around to Tommy and go, Tommy, tell us the one about the time you were coming home from the dance. 
And Tommy will sit there and go, I was coming home from the dance one night in a bank. And they'll tell stories and they'll go, just fucking went around. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. And halfway through it, Tommy stands up and goes, Should we have a very special guest tonight from Manchester, England, Mr. Michael Gary? He's had number ones in the charts. And Mike, would you mind saying a few words? Uh, <laughs> it was the best gig I've ever done in my life. My favourite gig I've ever done in my life. Um, I've done all these big holes. I've done them. I've done 5,000 people. I've done a London Palladium. Not saying they become boring because they don't, but what I am saying is unique gigs become even more special. I've done yeah. thousands of gigs with Clark. I don't remember the ones unless he loses the plot during the gig. Or does something stupid. Um, they're the ones that stick out, the weird ones. <laughs> That's a great, great answer. That's brilliant. And you kind of, you just mentioned uh, Dr. John Cooper Clark, and you've toured with him for a, a long time, almost a decade, right? Ten years, ten years now, yeah. And what, so what have you learned from him and vice versa? Give us a bit of insight into that. Ten years is a long time. You know what? It's really interesting because I was actually thinking about this the other day, um, Let's take the art side out of it. Let's take the whole art side out of it, the poetry and thing. And let's talk about the functionality of someone who tours, of someone whose job it is to tour. Now, we have a tour manager. His name is Johnny Green. He tour managed The Clash. He was The Clash's tour manager. Johnny's job is to get us to that venue and get us on that stage, make sure we're fed and to get everything in the thing. Now, what Johnny and Johnny did was taught me the profession of a professional musician or tourer. And it's shown me the checking into hotels, the making sure of your thing, the making sure you never go in a lift before the gig, the making sure your times, the making sure you the practicalities of doing a tour, of working on a tour, out of sleep, not to get pissed on certain nights. Take it easy if you've got four nights on the run. Just the practicalities of it. He's taught me. He's taught me how to be a, a, a professional touring person, performance person. Um, that's one element of what he's taught me. Well, both of them, him and Johnny Green. Um, but he's also taught me a lot about poetry and what works with audiences and what doesn't work with audiences. Because I'll stand there and watch him for ages, and I'll I'll view the vibe, and ultimately. It's, what I've learned from Johnny is, is how to create an atmosphere in a room, because that's what Johnny does, creates an atmosphere of fun in a room. Um, yeah, that's 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 what I've learned from him the most, how to do the job. Brilliant. Uh, Mike, music... I'm not to take heroin anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, kids. As he, as he strikes up another Rizzler. I love it. <laughs> right, Mike, music seems to have played a big influence on your life. It seems to have paved a winding path. Your poetry has a real musicality to it. How has that shaped your performance as a poet? Um, the human voice is a musical instrument. It is, it makes sounds, we can bury the sounds, we can make noises, we can make it sound like anything we want in lots of ways. Um, I've always seen it like that. I wrote to me old uh, secondary school teacher of a guy called Brian McNulty. He blagged me into joining the choir at school not a very cool thing to do. But then I discovered he got all the naughty lads and got them to join the choir. So we'd have loads of kids singing, loads of bad boys singing. Um, and what I discovered from Brian in lots of ways is that um, 
I've forgotten the original question because I've gone off, Phil. What was that? It was about whether it's the link between music and poetry, really. Yeah. Brian, Brian taught me that the voice was an instrument more than anything else. My performances are musical. When I'm doing comedy, my voice, is, my voice that sometimes sounds like I'm singing. But I can tell you artists, it was shocking to our spoken word artists. It shocked you to realise that David Bowie is a spoken word artist. A lot of his work, he talks. Mm. Yeah? He endure it. Just keep going through them. Loads of them. Bob Dylan. Dory they just talk. They just talk. They just so happen to have music behind them. Yeah. Um, I've done bands and all that. I don't like carrying equipment around. <laughs> so <laughs> I push for a pen and paper. But music is a massive influence on my life. I'm listening to it all the time. I'm making it all the time. I work with a string quartet called the Cassie String Quartet. We're making an album at the moment, going through that process. The whole process to me, though, is always based upon fun. It's not based upon being famous or making lots of money. It's about based upon fun. So I've got this group of young people who want to go, want to go, want to go. And I'm like, calm down. It's not a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Uh, music's really important. Constantly listening to music. Constantly having the influence of music and the voice. Because think about it. The, the most accessible form of poetry these days is lyrics from songs. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Yeah. That's interesting because that kind of... You mentioned earlier on about the, well, just now about the influence of music. Then earlier on, you spoke about your teacher in primary school, which is absolutely spot on. And we had that beautiful moment with the Signify poem. Um, she was obviously fundamental in your sort of upbringing and just made you feel special. And that, and that came out in your lyrics. How, how do you find inspiration? How do you find, you know, how do you, how do you come up with these, these, these just sort of brilliant renditions of things? What, what inspires you and how do you get inspired? Do you know, this is my job. I haven't got time to hang around for inspiration, man. I haven't got time to be sat here going, <laughs> inspiration, inspiration. <laughs> I haven't got time to sit here looking for it. It's my job. I'm not sat here waiting for inspiration. I'm constantly inspired. From the moment I open my eyes in the morning, there is inspiration taking place right in front of my very lenses, whether it's my missus snoring next to me or the curtain half open that's waking me. Life is so rich, and I drink from its cup every moment of my life. And I'm not just saying that. I am constantly working, constantly looking for angles, ways in which I can work a poem, Someone might say something, I hear the assonance in that line, and I'll write the line down and I'll say, great line, I'm having that. And it is a constant process. To be an artist, ain't about having time to drop in or drop out. It's just a constant thing. You don't stop doing it. It's a bit like being self-employed. <laughs> Peter Saville, as one of the most famous designers in the world, has described you as a genius. Are there people that you would look to and describe them as geniuses that you've passed on in your lifetime yeah i think i'm i think i'm really lucky in that i've i've worked with some genius philip glass is a genius total genius unique of thought of mind um ideas um i've worked with people who aren't famous who are geniuses i've worked with people who exist and nobody knows about them who are geniuses um i think there's a lot of genius about i think there's a lot of incredibly skilled talented people about 
Um, I couldn't say that there was w one massive influence in any way because there's just so much. Um, the influences are like what Dan said there, you know what I mean? The teacher, the people who you work with, you, Phil, meeting you, you're an influence, you know what I mean? The way you operate. Um, I'm surrounded by influences. Um, so, and geniuses. The world is rich. Hodge is full of genius. There's loads of genius yeah. in that room, you know what I mean? And it's a bit, in a sense, I won't be rubbing shoulders with genius because what I've discovered is I remember we were, I remember sitting in a in a rehearsal with Philip Glass, Tim Fain, who won an Oscar for um that dancing film, Black Swan. Um Jaron Lanier, Jaron Lanier, man, delete your Facebook account now. I remember sitting there with these incredible musicians and thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> and I'm like, why could he possibly have seen anything in me? And then I just thought, well, I don't care. I'm just rubbing shoulders and hoping a little bit of the genius rubs off. And it does. And it does. And that's something that differentiates between a genius and someone who's smart. The genius shares. They share their wisdom. They're not like the kid in class like that going, you're not copying. You're not copying. They sh they're like that. Come on, this is how it works. Philip Glass, Bernard Sumner, New Order. Come on, this is how it works. I'll show you. And it's about a sharing process. And that's something I've tried to do throughout my working life. Make sure that whoever you are working with, don't hold your information and knowledge like you're a bank. Share it. It comes back. It comes back. People remember. I have people contacting me and saying, Mike, you're very generous with your time. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just helping people. I'm just, mm. can you help me with this or whatever? And I think by doing that, that stuff comes back. You are repaid in different ways. Not that I'm doing it to be repaid. I hate it when people say to me, yeah, he's good to know. See him, yeah, you, you want to get to know. No, I don't want to get to know someone because they are good to know. I want to get to know them because they're good. They're nice yeah. people. Yeah. They're kind. Do you know what I mean? And if some of that influence rubs off on me, whereby I might learn something from that kid or that woman or where I've benefited. And that's, that's what it's about. Great answer. Great answer. I'm, I'm going to quickly just take you to one direct thing. Football. It's not on my list of questions, but as we're talking about geniuses in a week when Maradona's passed away, in the football world, and I know you're a keen football fan, who, who would you put in that category of genius that you would look on forever as being amazing. Maradona. Maradona. I'm not saying 10 times, but I don't even, he's beyond Pele. Don't get me wrong, Pele was the greatest footballer in the world, but football constantly revolves and changes and evolves and, and it's changed now. Football is a totally different game. But Maradona, for me, is the greatest player to ever kick a ball in his life. The things he did with it. The things he did with it, very closely by Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't particularly like the guys, but I don't like T.S. Eliot, but I love his poems. But the point is what those people did, what those... And do you know what? Rooney had a period in his life. There was a small period in his life where Rooney was genius, absolute genius. Still a peg below uh, Ronaldo because of his attitude and his upbringing and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think I think Maradona's the greatest footballer to ever kick a ball. 
<laughs> a good friend of mine who teaches at Liverpool University, Rogan Taylor. I know Rogan Taylor. I read yeah, his work no. all the time. He works at he works at the department for football, doesn't he? Exactly. Yeah, he he set that course, and he's got three daughters who who actually helped me at Podge. Amazing, amazing. But Rogan, I got him to come and do a talk once on his football hero, and he did a one-hour talk to all of the staff. This is when I had a proper job. You know, I went in every day. And he had a one-hour talk on the life of Ferenc Puskas. Right. It was incredible. Puskas, again, Johnny Green told me this. Puskas, again, in his time, was like Pele. He did things with the ball that no one else had ever done or no one else comprehended to do, to attempt to do. Um, but, again, Puskas, we have these, these players in our now who changed the rules almost, who almost changed the rules, the dynamics, the science of the ball almost. They move it in a different way. Yeah. Uh, Puskas was one of them. And mine, mine, of course, was Dennis Law. Dennis Law. <laughs> and my, my Twitter name now is Dennis Law. And if Dennis wanted it, I'd just give it to him. He could have it. But so Dennis, Dennis lives in Cholton. Yeah. He's a really good lad. I've had mates stop him in the street and say, Dennis, we're doing this charity thing, blah, blah, blah. Have you got anything? He'll go, I'll sort you a ball or I'll sort you a book and he'll send it signed and yeah. all that. But Dennis didn't like football. No, he, I he, remember. Did, he didn't particularly like football. Every Christmas, I read this in Bobby Charles, but every Christmas he'd get an injury so he could go back to Aberdeen. He'd come back after the... And he'd ask Bobby how they'd got on. <laughs> he wouldn't check the scores. Well, he wouldn't. He wasn't actually interested in it. To have so much skill and be so apathetic about it—it's it's, it's a unique position. It, it messes with me, Ed. Yeah, Dan, you're gonna have to move us on because we're in the top Man United. I'll tell you what, we're, we're going down all sorts of Man United. <laughs> as, as an Arsenal fan, I'm feeling uh, slightly uncomfortable. But bringing you back, Mike, onto Arsenal did it. Arsenal. I'm an Arsenal fan. Yeah, Wenger <laughs> did do it. He did. Yeah. yeah. Formed it. So yeah. much respect for Wenger, me. So much. Anyway, we've got to move on. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's bring it back on to some of some of the, you know, just the amazing things that you've written. When you write something as iconic as Gorton Girls Know All the Words to Songs by Shaka Khan or St. Anthony. Do you have a feeling that you've captured something special? You know, you mentioned earlier about this constant inspiration. When you write those things, do you have a certain feeling or buzz about it? Yeah, I do. Um, and, but don't forget, because you're an artist, you're always walking, like, walking down the dotted line of insensibility. So it's that thin line between ace or shit. So, and I'm serious, St. Anthony, I wrote St. Anthony and I brought it into Teddy Christian who commissioned it. And I read it, and uh, no, that's it. He put me in a studio, and I started reading it into the. And Teddy was stood there looking in the screen like that. And then Manny out the Stone Roses came and just stood there and started watching. And then somebody else came, some I think it was Clint Boom, and the three of them sat there looking at me like that. And I finished it, and I genuinely thought it was shit. I genuinely thought they hated it. Oh wow! But then Teddy, Teddy goes, Teddy just starts running around with it then and starts doing weird things like as if he discovered. Um, but the same happened with a poem I did with Fred's uh, for United called Threads That Weave. Um, I did a poem. They just come. Some of it just comes like that. But my favourite one is uh, a commission I did for um, Nationwide Building Society. Um, 
I did an advert for him, they asked me to write a poem about my kids going away to university. And whilst I was talking on the phone, I just remember bringing my kids swimming. I was on my own with my kids, me, when they were little. I remember bringing them swimming because it's cheap. And also I returned them to the mum clean and fed on the Sunday night. Um, and while this woman's talking to me about the kids got to university, um, this came in my head. Your first swimming lesson, age four. And the teacher asked the class, anyone swam in the deep end before? And your arms shot up straight away as if to say, of course, me, me dad, me sisters and me mates. But little did you know that round your arm were bands blown up with these lips and wrapped round with these two hands. And every time we'd go for a swim, I'd deflate an iron band a tiny bit and I'd pray and I'd hope that you'd learn to swim and cope and float on your own. Now, the second half of that poem's online. Check it out. It's about a relationship with your kids and how you never lose them. They're always there. It's just bands, like elastic bands where they keep coming back and they go away. And you want them to go away, but you don't. But you know they have to. And you want them to come back, but you don't. You don't want the fucking piles of washing in your thing. And you don't want them, but you do. And it's that weird juxtaposition feeling of love, but knowing to truly love them, you have to let them go. So, yeah, they come like that sometimes. And when they do, second half, so I wrote that half of the poem. Then I went in the kitchen to make the tea. Halfway through the tea, I burst out crying. Because I'd got it. The second half of the poem went, boom. It just landed there in my mind and I just had to put down the beans on toast. And running into the other room, just went different things, different times, different things throughout my life. It just came. It just came. Um, but it still took me 54 years to write it because I couldn't have done it if I hadn't done the 54 years of work before that. These people say to me, honestly, how long did it take to write that? 55 years, mate. <laughs> right. But it does. Yeah, you're right. You can't do it if you haven't done that all that before it. Yeah. Wisdom. Wisdom. And looking at your hair, a little few grey hairs there. Stress streaks, Phil. What are you going on? <laughs> grey hairs, cool. Really cool. We did, you know, I saw I saw, I saw one of my favourite adverts I've ever seen in my life the other day, and it was for Olay or something like that. And it's the first advert I've ever seen where by the saying, no, accept old age. Accept pro age, it was called this product. And yeah. I think we need to do more of it. Good. We all look aced. <laughs> I'm only 28. <laughs> well, Dan's only 22. He's <laughs> like in a bad life there watching Arsenal. Uh, now, um, live, live performances are what you thrive on. Everything that you've been doing all these years have been around live performances. And then the pandemic happens. So what have you actually been up to? How have you been surviving during it? And how do people that haven't been to one of your concerts, how do they get to find out more about Mike Gary? What's really difficult about performance for me is that um, it's quite hard to explain what happens. It's not just me stood on the stage talking. Something mental and spiritual sort of happens. And it sounds shit already. But what happens is, I automatically invade your soul. And I put a mirror to it like that. And I talk about things that you thought about a million times. You've never told anyone what you thought about. 
And I start asking you the questions you're asking yourself. By doing that, we unite and we almost become one. It's like I'm talking to you individually. And I create this atmosphere in a room, which is almost church-like. So that when you leave that room, you're a different person in a way. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. But I've got the ability of capturing an audience. I don't know where I get it from. I've never worked on it. I think it's because I'm honest. I can capture a room and I can hold silence in my hand. Yeah? To be able to do that is an incredible skill. Now, to do that on there is pretty much impossible. Pretty much impossible. So I made a decision pretty early on that I wasn't going to do a lot on here. I wasn't going to do a lot of talking on here. I wasn't going to do a lot of gigs on here. It's about the experience of togetherness, yeah. mate, about being in the same room. I've lost some of the greatest gigs. Me and Johnny were meant to be on with uh, McCartney at Glastonbury, same night. So I missed an opportunity to speak to McCartney, meet McCartney, missed Glastonbury, missed all these gigs. But you know what? I don't care. They come back. These gigs come back. They're not... They're not disappearing off the face of the earth. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been really difficult, Phil. Um, and if I hadn't sold my house last year, I don't know what I'd have done, to be honest. But, um, yeah, it's about, it's about taking opportunities to write as well. If you're an artist, yeah, all that work you were meant to be creating over the last few years, pandemic's given us an opportunity to do that work in lots of ways. So... Um, I've just tried to be really positive about it, you know, and yeah, try not to, not to, don't get me wrong, it has got me down at times. Um, but on the whole, I've just tried to be really positive and exercise and meditate and do yoga and talk to my loved ones. And, but the live performance, it's been a killer. Absolute killer. Yeah. Also, another reason why it's been a killer is because the way I've grown up, I never believed I'd be an artist. So I'm constantly saying to myself, like that guy there going, you're not an artist. Who do you think you are, you? Artist? What do you mean you're an artist? But when I do gigs, they're going, you're an artist, you're an artist. And he's there like that. And when I go in schools and work with kids, the kids are going, you're an artist. You're... So I've lost the validation. So the imposter syndrome's there. That's a big battle, yeah. that. The confidence. Confidence yeah. more than anything else, which is the key to what I do in lots of ways. Yeah. And as you can see, I've lost a lot of my confidence. Yeah, well, people can't see you. They can only hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you, and actually I know that you are quite shy, so it takes quite a quite an effort to actually get up in front of thousands of people and, and do what you do. It's, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy, but I can go into a zone, Phil. And when I go in that zone, it's all right because I'm sort of working. So it, does, it doesn't matter. And it's not me. It's a different place and a different world. Yeah. And it's not, it's not a normal world when I'm doing that. It's this in-between world whereby I talk to people and come up to me at the end and cry. I watched you uh, at Sports Podge a few years ago. The theme of the lunch was, was about rowing. And I commissioned you to write a poem about the rowing fraternity if you like and it was incredible to see how much time you spent behind the scenes going out with rowers 
and actually understanding, you know, whether you're chatting to someone who's won gold or someone who's won silver and but what that world and you in you, you completely get yourself involved in the world before you write the poem and then on the day you delivered it and everyone was just shocked by how good it was again it's about what i was talking about before um finding something within that world which is uniquely special and almost spiritual and i did because there always is and it's a time when you row whereby if you get it just right, you're meant to lift out of the water. You're meant to physically lift out of the water. I can't remember what it's called, but, and that was the theme of the poem. And again, it's not about the poem. It's not about what they asked me to write about. It's about us generally. If we get things right, sometimes we can rise out of the water. Sometimes yeah. we can stand strong. It's like I say about reading. Reading makes you physically taller because you stand tall when you are, confident you stand in a different way that's brilliant yeah mike what's the last thing that you saw that you thought that's wonderful fontaine's dc do you know them no no four dublin lads um 23 24 something like that um last time i saw similar thing was the arctic monkeys Right. Yeah, it is. It's an explosion of sound. It's the greatest sound that I've heard since that time. Um, but they're better than the Arctic Monkeys because they're more poetic with the lyrics. But that is the last thing I've gone. Oh, wow. Wow. And they're beginning to smash it. They're beginning to smash it. They've, uh, their, album went, their album went in at number two last week in, in the charts. Would have been number one if Taylor Swift hadn't have intervened and released something early to stop them getting to number one. Uh, Five kids from Dublin. Yeah. Five, about to go to number one and Taylor Swift does some management move that makes sure her thing goes to number one. It's all a con. Right. Let's we I'll probably libel that. I've probably libeled Taylor Swift there, actually. Actually, if you listen to the podcast we did recently uh that was quite when you talk about libel it was about an elton john story in that one so have a little, have a little listen to that one i'll listen to it i'll listen to it dan your final question sir yeah final question for me mike has been brilliant talking to you but as an agency we're all about trying to take complex things and make them simple because life's complex and there's just the world that we live in the technology and digital world can get really complex and we try and make it simple. So what's one of life's complexities you'd like to be see made simpler? The art of reading. There we go. We confuse it and make it so much more difficult than what it actually is. And it all starts with the education and introducing young people, i.e. children to books in a different way. Let's forget the reading schemes. Let's forget gin. Let's forget 1A, 2A, 3A, 4A. Have someone who's really interested and passionate about reading and the benefits of that to teach kids or to share the experience of reading with kids. It's not just a teacher's job. It's all our jobs. Brilliant. Brilliant. Great answer. Awesome. Great interview. Thank you very much, Mike. Very welcome. Right, guys. Lovely to meet you, Dan. Thanks so much, Mike. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at bewonderful.co.uk.